Hello, hello to the Ragbag Alliance. Your mission this week. Yes, we're doing missions now. You signed up to this Ragbag Alliance thing, whether you wanted to or not. New listeners, take note. If you listen to Ragbag, even if you've only done it once for five minutes because you somehow mistook me for Joe Rogan, you are officially a fully paid up member of the Ragbag Alliance and must do my bidding. Your mission this week is to leave me a five-star rating slash review, specifically on iTunes. As long-term listeners will attest, I have never asked you to do this before, but numbers are increasing, and there's a possibility that if I get enough ratings, the show might end up in the charts or something. Now, won't that be exciting for everyone? And everyone who gives me a five-star rating, you'll be part of that, and if you're extra good at carrying out this mission i'll give you a shout out on the podcast and i won't even say anything insulting i'll just say thank you very much that sort of thing yeah also buy my books a history of sarcasm and 100 check out the ragbag rambler video series on youtube new book the long-awaited ragbag novel is out next year and that won't be long now will it also before we begin just a quick warning there's some swearing in today's episode I don't usually give this sort of warning because we usually uh, keep it clean. But there is an important reason for the swear words being there, as you will hear. I can't imagine anyone who listens to this is going to be offended by the F word. But maybe all you parents out there like to whack a bit of rag bag on while you're doing the school run. Hi, kids. Now, let's get on with this. Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. My guest this time is Robin Gray. Robin is not only an accomplished multi-instrumentalist, he's also written some of the most poetic and politically insightful lyrics you're likely to hear from anyone. In fact, he's just a great singer-songwriter all round. We'll start with one of the songs we'll be discussing later on. This is called Leave It In The Ground. She was hiding as I made my way home Back through the marshes and miles away Degrees are debated by the powers that be Now I don't give weight to all the fancy bluffing It's just so much hot air and back slapping leave it in the ground i want our world to avoid being drowned the coots are still up they love this weather oh would they give a fuck If we weren't here People on the street Reclaiming the rhetoric Oh, money might talk But well, so can we Stand up and 
sick You'll wonder at the difference a voice can make When we all speak together Leave it in the ground I want our world to avoid being drowned Leave it in the ground I want our world to avoid being drowned Leave it in the ground I want our world to avoid being drowned Great stuff, I'm sure you'll agree. Now... Here's my interview with Robin. I began by asking him how he got started in music. I think um, if you were to ask my granny that, she would probably say that I just would never, ever stop singing as a child. And um, she tells a, a very good story about me just always wanting to sing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head and, and various other songs. Yeah, singing has just always been a big part of my life. Something I jokingly refer to in my my bio online is um, I remember so vividly my first piece of recorded music that I owned, and it was a a cassette that came after I collected tokens on the back of Kellogg's Start, which is a very overly sugary breakfast cereal that I used to love at a quite a young age, and it had um. Billy Jean by Michael Jackson on one side, and there's a guy who works down the chip shop, swears he's Elvis by Kirsty McCall on the other side. Oh, and I had a, <laughs> a strange combination. Yeah, and I had this like brown Fisher Price cassette recorder that, like, you know, just played things in mono and it had a microphone so you could record in mono. And I just remember, like, just like having my own absolute private disco ball to these two songs in my bedroom as a kid. And yeah, so just music always just had such a strong resonance for me. And it was always songs as well um, that, that really got me. Yeah, and then, you know, at some point I started noticing that music was made up of instruments and I just started being interested to see if I could use any of those, if I could yeah, get something from any of those instruments. And I tried a bit of oboe and didn't really resonate with that tried a bit of piano enjoyed that more and then eventually I came to the guitar and as soon as I found the guitar I just was yeah lost in a world of music and dedicated most of my teenage time to to music which was yeah feels like it was time well spent great and uh, is that when you started writing songs as well yeah I started writing songs at exactly the same time as playing guitar yeah, I remember very vividly like some of the first songs I wrote. And at the time, they were too hard for me to be able to play. And I was just a bit like, oh, I need to get better at guitar so I can play these songs. Yeah, and you know, looking back on them, they're, I mean, lyrically a bit adolescent, but I mean, some of the melodies and some of the chord progressions and some of the voicings still sort of hold up fairly well. And yeah, I know, I mean, I, I've always historically considered myself maybe more of a songwriter than a musician. I spent a lot of time in my late teens and early 20s as a session bass and double bass player for other artists. And, right. you know, 
I'm, I'm definitely sort of got a degree of competency on that instrument. But yeah, right now I sort of feel more like a, a, a songwriter than, than anything else, which is fine. I love, I love songs. I love the structure of them. I love the sound of syllables and I love lyrics and, and yeah, just, and hooks as well. I love, <laughs> love hooks. Awesome. So how, how did you get to the point then of kind of recording your own stuff and kind of performing your own work? I mean, I think I was playing bass in, in sort of session bass, but also in th- with one artist and in two bands and just putting so much energy into it. And then for various different reasons, all three of those things came to an end. And I was just like, wow, I just felt really um, gutted that, that, that those projects had come to an end. And I was just like, you know what? I think it's time for me to put some energy into my music. And I just remember thinking, right, okay, I'm just going to put away my, my bass guitar and double bass for a while. And around that time, I was teaching a lot of guitar, but I was teaching from my shared house in East London. And I just had so many students coming and going, it was getting a bit ridiculous. So I went and found this tiny little cupboard, which I turned into a music room and teaching studio. But I also kitted it out with, incredibly basic recording equipment and just was like right let's let's learn how to do this and through the projects that I've been working on in the previous years I'd watched some yeah sort of audio engineers and, and producers and just sort of had a vague idea that where you pointed a microphone at things and what it meant kind of to mix and edit things and just thought well let's give this a go and at some point in the process I realized I've recorded like nine or 10 songs and yeah, I was just like, Oh, well let's, let's stick it out as, as an album. And, and, and that was kind of the beginning of that. And yeah, I, I did quite a lot of gigging um, back then. I don't think I was ever very good at gigging. What was it that you feel you were lacking in? I guess I, I was never, it never occurred to me that I needed to practice you know, when I was doing recordings in the recording studio, like I'd really try and get everything really, really right. I'd really think about things. But I never really approached my my live show in that way. And, and I wish I had a little bit more because, yeah, I'm quite happy with some of the recordings that I did. But I imagine if I listened back to a recording of, of some of my live shows, I'd probably find it fairly cringeworthy and would think that I wasn't doing myself justice. Uh, and, and is that something that's got better over time then? Um, yeah, I've definitely grown into myself as a performer. I mean, I, I used to be, I mean, shy is not the right word because if you put me on stage with a bass guitar, I was incredibly, incredibly confident. But I definitely wasn't confident as an artist. I'd spent most of my life being a backup musician for other artists. And I just found that, found that quite difficult. So I have definitely grown into it. And I had to go through quite a... Pain bear is not quite the right word, but just like being able to be on stage and be myself and feel comfortable was quite a long journey for me. Yeah, and also I suppose if, if you're singing songs that you've written they're your songs and it's yeah. kind of your voice absolutely um, so absolutely it's, it's very different to kind of playing an instrument in somebody's band yeah for sure and you know i mean 
East London 15 years ago, you know, there was a lot of extraordinarily talented musicians I was sharing the stage with. And a lot of people, some people have very showy guitar technique. Some people have incredibly beautiful vocals. My strong point was always the songwriting, but it's amazing how many people are often way more impressed by virtuosic technique on an instrument be it voice or guitar or whatever, and, and don't notice the craft of songwriting or quite as much, or even lyrics, you know, like um, the, the people who inspired me, you know, were incredible poets and lyricists. And, you know, some people listen for the lyrics, but a lot of the time, you know, you're lucky if you get an audience who are really going to invest the energy into sort of following, following your lyrics. So, yeah, I just, I kind of muddled through all of that and, and had some fun. I met some great musicians and did end up, putting together a really good live band. But um, yeah, organizing and coordinating a band on top of all the nerves around performing my own songs. Yeah, I just, I never quite managed to work out how to make that a fun, a fun and relaxing <laughs> enterprise. Yeah, I can imagine that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when did you start writing political songs? Were your early songs have like, political elements to them or did that come later on? I think that the political side has become more explicit, but it was, it was always there sort of um, in the background of my songwriting. But yeah, it's just become, it's become a lot more foreground as I've become more confident in, in my views. I mean, one of my earliest songs that I was really happy with was a song called Roses from Africa, which I think is on one of my, well, it is on one of my early albums, but, um, I've, I've, I've never been happy with that recording. I've always wanted to re-record it. But that, you know, um, that song was very much about climate change. And it was about climate change way before anybody outside of the environmental movement, like, knew much about it or talked much about it. I definitely have been becoming very political, I guess, now. I mean, you know, a lot of people know me for my running with David Cameron or the work I do with my History of Land Rights show. So, you know, a lot of people actually don't know any of my other material other than my political material, which is oh, funny because, yeah. yeah, in England, everybody knows me really from, if, if people know me, they know me through my political work. But most of the people who know the rest of my material are people who are in Germany or Brazil or Russia or North America or, you know, other places much further away. Yeah, okay, because, I mean, you, you, you don't just write political songs, you do other things as well. I enjoy the variety. You know, I sing about what's, what's going on for me. It's a really good way of me helping to make sense of what's going on in my head. And some days that's heartache, and some days that's, you know, that's politics, and some days it's just a, a good story that I've heard and want to tell. Or I've always just been amazed at how many people listen to my music but also slightly baffled about the fact that I have very little idea who they are. Well, there's one website in particular, Gemendo, where I just have millions of streams. You know, every so often I get really, really beautiful fan messages from all over the, the world. But because, yeah, uh, that doesn't, I, I haven't been out and performed much around England and certainly never really left this island to perform. It's, it's just a bit like, wow, who, who are these people? I mean, like, I know a lot of them are in France, but uh, yeah, I haven't quite got over there to do any shows. And I actually had um, 
some French fans come all the way to London just to watch me do a gig one time and it just completely oh, blew wow. my mind. Like, it was just like, yeah, it, just, I mean, it was quite, yeah, very emotional. Cool. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, most of the people who listen to my podcast are American, as they have. Nice, um, nice. So um, I, I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah. And, um, I have a feeling that people are more, you know, in England, we... we I think it's, it's just very much a sort of like following fashion and what, you know, the music industry decides is right. Whereas I do get the feeling from France and Germany and North America, people are just up for a bit more exploring and it doesn't have to be like, oh, okay, this is obviously in this genre and that makes sense as part of this kind of, this cultural movement or zeitgeist or whatever. Yeah, it's what I imagine. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I was listening to um, Leave It In The Grounds earlier mm, on. And mm. I just think it's a really powerful song in its own way. And it's it's a really simple song. And I think that's what makes it powerful. Yeah, and it's that- really, sometimes it's nice to leave space in songs to let people, you know, fill in the gaps. And, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's okay. You know, it's nice to be quite explicit. So I, I, I do enjoy the full variety of sort of exploring different ways of expressing ideas. I mean, Hackney Gentrification Song is a sort of another example, but coming from a different place, which is the premise of um, what does it mean to write a really sad song, but make it really jolly? This place, it means the world to me. Knock it down, build flats, knock it down. The first place I really felt home in London. Knock it down, build flats, knock it down. Because, you know, the, the song Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. does a really interesting thing of sort of like being very major in the verses and then very minor in the choruses. and. I've just been yeah. always really interested of what it's like, like singing about something really sad over a very major chord progression and, and, and vice versa. But yeah, leave, leave it in the ground. Yeah, that was a really, really enjoyable song. A really enjoyable song to write. And it wrote itself very, very quickly. That whole song was, was done in like 40 minutes. Um, and, you know, yeah, some days they just, they just arrive fairly fully formed and some days you spend 10 years sculpting them and five years recording them that's just the creative process or my creative process there is a fine gent christened rule the land mulch sow and then reap there is a fine gent christened rule the land and he has green fingers on both of his hands I'll be good to the land and the land will be good to me. The Ballad of Hawkwood is the story of some friends of mine who formed a workers' cooperative and got 12 acres of land on the outskirts of London. And the place is called Hawkwood Nursery. And um, yeah, they're incredibly inspiring people who have changed my life fundamentally and do change the lives of a lot of people who come into contact with their work and that that song I've recorded it twice actually the lyrics got um slightly panned by a friend of mine who pointed out that I was being a bad feminist by 
singing about forefathers all the time. So um, that song, along with a few of my songs, I, I, I often re-record my songs because I just, I grow, that I grow and grow and um, listening to some of my early recordings does feel a little bit looking at naked baby photos. It's a bit like, oh, that's a bit embarrassing, you know, <laughs> mum for that way. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, the story of, of the Ballad Hawkwood is, is about the Organically Workers Cooperative in East London and how they managed to blag 12 acres of land, you know, on the outskirts of London, which is a pretty impressive thing to do. Are they still there? Oh, absolutely. They're being incredibly successful. It's thrilling to just see something that's been a big part of my life just, you know, just grow and, and thrive and just be so deeply rooted in, in the, uh, both, you know, literally and met- metaphorically. Cool. But I was going to ask you also about, um, first of all, three acres and a cow. Mm. So what, what's the story behind that then? So that, you know, kind of forks off of the last question you asked about organically. And I, you know, was inspired by my work with them to go along to my first um, sort of political gathering, which was a bunch of people pointing out that government funding for the testing of genetically modified crops wasn't a particularly good use of public money. And it wasn't actually what farmers wanted. Like, you know, it was just you know, the agribusiness lobby doing its thing. Anyway, at at that gathering, there was a French choir singing all these beautiful French songs of resistance. And when they finished, all the English people just kind of resorted to football chants. And I realised at that moment that, like, I didn't know any of my culture's old songs of resistance and just set myself the challenge and made a bit of a vow that I would go and learn as many as I could and teach them to as many people as I could. And that process of me learning old songs of resistance and protest and teaching them to people evolved into the show, Three Acres and a Cow, A History of Land Rights and Protest in Folk Song and Story. And I thought it was just going to be a one-off and then it happened and a good number of people came and yeah, that's been a huge part of my life. And I've been a lot more focused on that show the last six years than I have been performing under my own name, which has been, has been really great. And again, I've grown in confidence and reputation as a performer, but I am very much looking forward to a sort of a time and place where I can get back to... Um, to singing, oh, 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 yeah, songs about all sorts of things, including politics and land rights, but other things as well, because um, I think I'd enjoy the variety and the challenge. Have you got plans to do that soon? I, I really should make some, shouldn't I? I was talking to some musicians who I met recently about doing a few shows in the spring, but um, it's so easy to... Um, to prioritise other things because everything else is just 10 times easier. Like standing on stage and going, everybody come and see me stand on stage and sing songs I've written. I find that to be like the hardest thing imaginable. I'm sort of maybe half, maybe two thirds of the way through finishing another album. And I'm also trying to do a Three Acres and a Cow album. And the winter feels like a really, I always love making albums in the winter because everybody else is just complaining about how short the days are. And I'm just like not noticing it because I'm like, great, let's make, let's make some records. 
<laughs> Great. You mentioned um, yourself and David Cameron earlier on. Mm. Now, um, yeah. just for the benefit of people who don't know what went down in that encounter. That was a very unusual day. I was cycling around a very remote part of England, Northumberland National Park, essentially. And I, I'd just been visiting a friend and I was doing a four hour cycle from inland to the coast to go and visit my granny. And halfway through that cycle, I nearly got knocked off my bike by a big blue bus. And I was quite cross about this. And I pulled over just to kind of catch my breath. And this was during a, a general election. And I noticed that the bus was the official sort of general election campaign bus of, of the Conservative Party, which is the sort of right-wing Republican-esque party of the wealthiest people in this country who were in power at the time. And yeah, I had my guitar with me. I had my ukulele with me. I'd just done a show a couple of days before. And I just thought, wow, well, you know, here's an opportunity. And out of the bus stepped the Prime Minister. Yeah, I just got out my ukulele and just started singing the first thing that came to mind. You know, I spent a lot of time improvising joke songs when working in primary schools. And I just basically just improvised the first silly thing that came to mind and hilariously when I started singing David Cameron was actually quite a long way away from me but what I hadn't noticed is I was right by a pedestrian crossing on a road and David Cameron as part of his itinerary had to cross over the road to go into this local shop where he was doing a photo shoot so I was actually a long way away from him when I started singing but he had to walk straight past me and, you know, there was a little flurry of paparazzi. You know, the next thing I know, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm on the national news. And that was, you know, the eye of a media storm for 24 hours, as, as is often the case with these things before the, the news moves on. But, um, yeah, it was just very, very enjoyable. You know, I think, you know, I was using quite strong language. The, the lyric of the chorus was, um, fuck off back to Eton. And, you know, that's not, a particularly subtle thing to say and for, for those who don't know what Eton is Eton is like the most expensive most privileged school in Britain it's where the richest people in Britain send their children to be educated but I guess the thing is you know it was just done with a smile and there was obviously not a shred of anger in my voice and there's something, again, you know, in the same way that sort of singing a sad melody over a, a happy chord progression, singing, you know, quite a strongly worded political missive with a ukulele over three major chords with a smile. It confuses people. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, that was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, just something. Yeah, that that, really that, that's interesting that you just came across it because I was going to ask: Was it something that you kind of had pre-planned, or, or did it? Was it spur of the moment? No, you literally almost got knocked down by the bus. That's even better. Yeah, I mean, literally, if <laughs> if the bus had because the bus was turning from a side road onto the main road, and I was cycling down the road, and if the bus had stopped and waited, and I'd I would have literally cycled past it, and that never would have happened. But 
the bus just ignored the fact that there was a cyclist down the road and just pulled in in front of me and literally like nearly clipped my front wheel. And I was just like, <laughs> fuck you. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> really fuck you, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, you know, a little bit of karmic retribution. Um, and what I think is, is a fun fact connected to that is that a prime minister of Britain has not made a public appearance during a general election campaign since that moment. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, so, you know, the last, um, the last general election, we had a different prime minister of our country, Theresa May, but d- she did not make a single public appearance in the whole election campaign. <laughs> in and case you turned up with a u- ukulele. Yeah, well, in case anybody did, you know, it's just felt to be too risky. And to the best of my knowledge, Boris Johnson, who's currently our prime minister, hasn't made a public appearance yet in this general election campaign. And I've just been looking online today and he went to a hospital today and it was all incredibly stayed managed and choreographed and there was no opportunity for any staff to speak with him or any members of the public to speak with him. So... Yeah, that would be quite a thing if no prime ministers connected to the Tory party make a, a public appearance again for quite a long time since my bit of singing. <laughs> that's excellent. Well, you, you've played your part well there. Well done. Well, they're still in power, so it's not worked, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how it... I, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic, but we'll see how it pans out in the next yeah, few weeks. Yeah, yeah. It's important to be optimistic because um, the purpose of billionaire-controlled press and the millionaire-controlled polling companies are to make us feel despondent and dispirited. You know, they've all been completely wrong in all of the polls and elections that we've had recently. So, um, yeah, yeah, point. Pl- yeah. You know, please just do rock a little bit of optimism because otherwise, you know, they're winning and laughing at us. Yes. Well, you know, I, I will be voting and um, that's, that's, uh, that's one thing. Yeah. Voting's good. Encouraging other people to vote. That's good too. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, wh- whatever it takes to, to play our part in these things, because, you know, we are seeing um, massive widening inequality in our society and the, you know, the breakdown of a lot of our communities and a lot of our safety nets. And that's sad tragic abhorrent infuriating and unacceptable to to me and i hope you know to many many other people once they find out and understand about it so you know it really does feel like a good time to um engage because between our climate emergency and the resurgent far right it's it's the hour's getting a little bit late to just sit back and be a spectator indeed indeed it is is this getting you all fired up for um, doing some more kind of uh, political songs? Yeah, I, I, I don't really have much control over my muse. She just generally comes and hits me over the head with a song when she decides to. And I've actually been working most recently recording a song that I wrote 15 years ago that I've tried to record about six times in the last 14 years. And yeah, so I'm just kind of quite lost in that. And that's very much uh, a love song and very free of politics. But um, yeah, I'm, I say I'm trying to record some of the material that comes from Three Acres and a Cow at the moment, which is obviously pretty political. So yeah, we'll, we'll just see. I'm, you know, I generally do tend to carry my ukulele around with me. And 
if on the off chance I bump into Boris Johnson. I mean, Boris Johnson went to the same school as David Cameron, so I don't actually need to change the song at all. <laughs> True, yeah. Back to Eton, back to Eton, back to Eton with all your Eton chums. Back to Eton, back to Eton, back to Eton with all your Eton chums. Tax breaks for the rich, tax breaks for the rich, tax breaks for the rich and all your Tory chums. Then you blame the migrant workers, you blame the migrant workers, blame the migrant workers and not your Tory chums. Won't you back to Eton, back to Eton, back to Eton with all your Eton chums. So um, what kind of music are you listening to at the moment? Uh, I just downloaded all of Queen's back catalogue and Dave Bowie's back catalogue because I realised I just didn't know their music at all other than the sort of obvious hits and I just thought it would be a good idea. I, I, I sometimes love just picking an artist, listening to all their albums in order and just really hearing the progression of their sound and their songwriting and their artistry. So that's kind of what I'm listening to for work, I'll say. Like, you know, I don't yeah. like a lot of the early David Bowie I'm listening to but like it's really interesting just to have that as an exercise what I'm listening to for fun I really love the 1979 <laughs> I just adore them ah. which is quite rare because it's not often that I like something that is popular in contemporary culture at the time is, are, are when they, it's are popular they, are they called 79 or are they 75 Oh, is it 75? <laughs> it <is>, yeah. <laughs> <You're> so old. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Sorry. Thank you. That's just such a quality mistake to make. <laughs> Get the year right, Granddad. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know, I have got grey hair and I'm not down with the kids anymore. Um, yeah, it's just really funny because I... I've loved their music for years, way before they got famous because one of my teenage guitar students asked me to teach them the 1975's first single. And I just had it on my phone for years. And then one day I was reading a blog post and it talked about how 1975 were headlining some big festival in America. And I was like, what? I just assumed that they were a one hit wonder and it just completely disappeared off the radar. And then I started Googling them and I was like, holy shit, they're huge. And yeah, I've been listening to a lot of them and if I'm not listening to them, I'm probably listening to Alt-J. You know, I still love albums as, you know, I love songs as uh, crafting a song and, you know, putting hooks in it and thinking about its structure. But I do still love the art of making albums. And, you know, it's a, it's a lost art now and it's a redundant art and things have returned back to being about singles, which is where it came from. You know, it wasn't until the Beatles and, and Sergeant pepper and um the beach boys and pet sounds that the art of the album really became a thing and you know that's now that's almost a lost art thinking about really crafting an album but yeah the the first alt j album awesome wave i i consider that to be the finest album that i know of the last 10 years like i'm sure there have been some other great ones made but i just haven't met them fully yet oh, i need to check that out yeah, it makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs>
Excellent. Oh, that's that's nice. That's nice. Cool. Uh, yeah. And um, yeah. But so, well, that that's all the things that I was going to ask you about. Is there anything else Great. that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about? Or um, no. I mean, I guess if you're listening in America, good luck getting rid of your president, and uh, please wish us luck in getting rid of our right wing government as well. Because um, yeah, the musical sound better if we live in a live in a fair and more equal society. Well said. I don't know, one of the songs I think I've been most proud of, because it just doesn't sound like a lot of other things I did, was um, Underneath the Skin. I was just so happy with how that came out, and it was just a day where I was stuck somewhere a long way from my recording studio, and I only had one microphone. And I was just like, how can I make an interesting song using just one microphone? And I only had my guitar, I didn't have any other instruments, so everything on that is like humming, whistling, body percussion and just layering up sounds. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. Places I've not seen When the telegraph opines You know that this is not a dream mm-hmm. 
What a great guest and what brilliant songs. Thanks very much to Robin Gray. All the links to Robin's music can be found in the show notes. Now remember, your mission, Ragbag Alliance. Give me that rating right now on the iTunes. Go before you forget. Ragbag is back next week. Lots more bonus bags currently in production. Some great guests on the way soon. I will see you next time. Enjoy yourselves. Oh, follow me on social media as well if you want. Just I'm not going to tell you the details. Just find it yourself. Bye. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.